Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, we have a a bit of catching up about coronavirus and our experiences with um, sort of the social climate around the virus. Um, Just a few updates. So I recorded this uh, last Saturday. Um, However, some things have changed since the discussion. So now the unemployment rate is somewhere around 26 million, um, according to reports, as opposed to 22. Um, And at the time we were talking about this, which was literally just a few days ago, people were talking about it being only 16 million and the projected number was 22 million. Um, Some other things also, there has been an update in the Instacart strike. There was a report that came out um, with Democracy Now! a few days after our recording this, so I've included that in the show notes if you're interested in finding out more about what's going on for those workers and how the company has responded rather insufficiently. Um, Anyway, with with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Wendy Muse for Left Pocket Project, aka Left POC. I'm here with my co-host Richard, and today we're just going to have sort of a loose conversation about what's been going on in the world, in our communities, and of course in politics. Uh, So yeah, hey, Richard, what's up? How are you doing? Hey, hello, everyone, and I'm happy to be back. And Everything is well with me, as can be, given the circumstances. Uh, politically and environmentally and uh, with the virus situation and everything. Uh, For me, uh, uh, I think I've mentioned before that I've been uh, trying to be out and more active. It's kind of changed that for me a little bit, but uh, I've been trying to find ways to get involved with uh, some of the pop-up food things that I've been seeing. So that's one way I've been able to both get out of the house and also still kind of keep my political activism uh, going in the community. That's really good. Um, I mean, it's cool that you're doing, you're finding ways to do it. Just, I hope that you're like PPE'd up with your, did you get your mask from China yet? I did get the, the first shipment and it's uh, the gear is limited and it's kind of, you know, as you've seen probably various uh, folks on Twitter, there's kind of uh, best practices that uh, these pop-up places have been using. And so uh, to the degree that it's available, but it's also recommended that people sanitize anything that they pick up as well. But uh, the sanitation supplies are still kind of limited because of the hoarding. So it's a, it's a balancing act. And uh, luckily, our hospitals outside of Seattle, uh, uh, more particularly where the virus really spread initially in Washington State, the they haven't been overwhelmed too bad, but uh, there has been reports from nurses in our area about uh, having to reuse PPE gear and stuff like that. And so there's been uh, distribution issues, I guess, internationally, because I was talking to some of my European friends and in Germany, they're talking about potentially opening back up uh, like hairstylists and uh, stuff like that with adequate PPE gear. So uh, while in the U.S. we're using cloth masks, uh, the other countries are starting to be able to reopen in limited ways uh, due to having more access to PPE gear. So uh, I guess generally, uh, otherwise I just kind of went off there, but uh, I guess really (laughs) what I wanted to say is just that like uh, there's a lot going on. And so I'm trying to stay uh, 
active so that I don't, you know, kind of swim around in it too much, I guess. Right. Um, what you said a second ago just made me think of like 30 different topics. So I'm going to try to <laughs> remember them all. Um, first thing is the discussion about PPEs is really funny to me because, well, not funny. Like, let's mm-hmm. just say it's not funny, haha, but just funny is like interesting, but also somewhat humorous because like things that I had in the house that were normally like things that I took for granted. So like we had some basic masks for um, like house renovation type stuff that we just had lying around. Um, and then we had a, like, you know, we had a huge gallon sized thing of Purell and mm-hmm. we had, um, we have just like basic cleaning supplies, you know, like Lysol bleach and whatever. And right now I'm like rationing all that stuff because I recognize that if you try to go to Walmart or Sam's club or wherever you normally buy your cleaning supplies, it's pretty much you're like shit out of luck. Like they don't have anything. Everything's like flying off the shelves or just gone indefinitely. Um, even paper towels, obviously, like I don't really, I'm not a huge paper towel person, but I'm cloth diapering the baby, which was my plan anyway. But long story short, there are um, these inserts that you can, or not inserts, but they're like liners that you can buy so that when the baby starts eating solid foods and pooping, you just like pick up the liner, dump it and like throw it away. And then it keeps the diaper from getting like super stained. Anyway, um, I had heard that some people were using Viva paper towels for this. And this is not sponsored, by the way. So like any name brands that I mentioned during this discussion, <laughs> we're not getting paid for them. Although surely Viva paper towels, you could sponsor me by just sending me a roll of paper towels, which would be nice. Um, but yeah, the main thing is like people use these paper towels. because They're like cloth-like apparently as liners in baby diapers. And they're all sold out. Even on their website, there's like no more. And if you try to buy even just basic paper towels for like other uses, they're all gone. Toilet paper obviously is still in crazy demand. Um, And so the other day, my husband had walked the dog and he came in and he like, pumped Purell into his hands and I literally screamed at him like I lost it what are you doing like you can't use the Purell (laughs) like you cannot like you have to ration it you know like every single time I use cleaning supplies or Purell or any of that stuff like I'm I'm literally like calculating in my head how long can I stretch out this container of Purell or Lysol or whatever and um like we had ordered, we we had gotten like some grocery items the other day and I, you know, like I basically Purell everything that comes into my house that's like in a plastic container or something that I can wipe off um, just because I know that they say, oh, you don't really have to do that, whatever. And then like, just like they said, oh, you don't really have to wear a mask. And then next week it's like, oh, just kidding. You have to wear a mask. You're going to die. So there's always <laughs> this like fear that mm-hmm. I have. And I always feel like because the information is still all like the jury's still out on so many aspects of the coronavirus that I'm just super paranoid that we don't know enough yet to make conclusive, um, to have like a conclusive response to these things. And what we hear from the CDC, the WHO, et cetera, and that's something we can talk about a bit later, the defunding of the WHO by the US. Um, But whatever we hear is often delayed. You know, it's like after scientists have looked at something, after the committees have gone over stuff, and then even then it's not conclusive. So like, they're still they're they're still trying to figure stuff out as we're trying to figure stuff out and least at least in terms of like accepting what they're saying and putting it into practice. So um, here, for example, in Maryland and in, in Maryland State and Baltimore City, they've said that masks are mandatory, but like people are making masks out of everything. We're having to go to you know, like websites, crafting websites and stuff to make cloth masks. And we're trying to figure out what do we use as a filter and all of these things. And so it's really interesting to kind of like 
try to figure out all of these things in real time um, while the threat is still there. I even had a friend recently who got coronavirus um, and he had been following all the orders, you know, like staying inside, not going out to public places, really not, you know, ordering all his food, like having food delivered, whatever. Um, And he said that he got it from walking his dog. And basically he had not been wearing a mask while walking the dog and running and things like that. And he assumes that it's possible that someone else walking their dog or jogging or whatever got too close to him, potentially breathed in his vicinity. And that's how he got it because all the other areas checked out that like he hadn't done anything to risk exposure. So when you hear those things, it just kind of makes you super paranoid and at least me and makes me want to be ahead of the curve in terms of like what we're being told by officials versus what's happening on the ground and like what I'm hearing from other people. Um, The other thing that you had mentioned too about like helping people and getting out of the house. I mean, I'm having kind of the reverse or the, I guess, inverse of what's going on with you. So I had spent a lot of time inside the house prior to coronavirus because of dissertation work and stuff like that and just like doing housework in general. Um, And so when I had the baby, I sort of, who just as a disclaimer, as per usual, y'all may hear her in the background. Please accept my apologies in advance. I will try to mute if she gets into screaming mode or anything like that. Um, But I had been in a position where I was like, okay, like, you know, when the baby comes, I plan on spending a lot of time in in the house with her because she's going to be a newborn. But then, you know, like wanting to go outside to take her for walks and put her in the bath, you know, put her in the stroller, walk around the neighborhood, whatever. And right now, like we've taken the baby outside maybe three times um, and like total with the exception of her hospital visits and like doctor visits and stuff. And it's just, it's crazy. Like I, I, cause I'm afraid. I literally am afraid to just leave my house sometimes because as I've mentioned before, I would be someone considered at risk because I have asthma and MS. And like, to me, it's really scary because again, we don't have enough information. Um, And so I'm living in constant fear that like the baby could get it and then, or I could get it. And it's just, it's awful. And it's completely, for me at least, changed my life in ways that I wasn't, I don't think I, it really like fully hit me in the beginning that it would be like this to this degree. Um, And you know, like, I don't know. I'm, I I still see people walking around who like, don't seem to care. Um, don't, aren't wearing masks, aren't really like, seem like have no care in the world or whatever. And what I have noticed, at least in my neighborhood is that that is racialized. So like most of the black people I see young, old, you know, male, female, whatever, they're wearing masks and they're wearing some, sometimes even gloves, like looks like they may have been coming from a grocery store or something like that. But when I see people walking around, most of the people of color, black people in particular, at least, you know, considering Baltimore, um, that's the demographic I see the most and they are wearing masks and other forms of like protective gear. Whereas some white people in the neighborhood are, but most of them seem to just be chilling. Like it seems like it's some sort of extended vacation. Um, And perhaps it is for some people. And maybe that's a matter of not just race, but also class and like healthcare security. Like maybe they have better insurance and they're not that worried or whatever. But I also think um, part of it, and this kind of can get us into another topic, but I think part of it also relates to all these constant reports coming out saying that like, you know, black people in particular are disproportionately affected by this, Latinos as well. Um, And I think what's missing from those reports is like, or at least the discussion of it is often that it it becomes like a racial issue, but then they don't tie in explicitly like this is about 
not having access to good health care over the years. This is about not having access to doctors who even like are testing them or listening to them when they are showing symptoms. Um, this is about obviously racism that's inherent in what I just mentioned uh, and classism that's inherent in what I just mentioned. So like there are all these things that are happening, but the headline is just black people are going to get it, are more likely to get it than white people. And I think some, potentially some white people, maybe not all, but I think those who are not taking this seriously are seeing this as just a quote unquote black disease or black virus um, and are perhaps not accepting the fact that like, no, we're actually all susceptible. It's just a matter of like our healthcare people of color and black people particularly, our healthcare outcomes are different because of the ways that we have been, um, you know, disproportionately affected by our racist and classist society. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, you touched on some very excellent points there and the racial disparities kind of uh, being a signifier of the deeper inequalities in our society, I think is, uh, is very poignant. And then also I, I think I saw some uh, sort of kind of, you know, stay at home thing where they got a uh, puff, puff daddy or diddy. I don't know what he's going by right now, but in uh, magic and a few <laughs> other people like together in order to like encourage people to stay home and to, you know, not play basketball and all these types of things. And it was, it felt bad. It, it felt very racially overtoned in the way that mm. you describe it. Like, you know, Hey, you know, black people, you need to stop. But then I look at beaches in Florida, pictures of beaches in Florida. And like, as you said, it's a bunch of unmasked people walking around and many of them not observing social distancing and I don't see any black people in the pictures. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I, there's definitely that. And in my personal experience, uh, like Washington is a pretty white state, but then we have one of the, uh, or well, the uh, blackest city, which is about 20% black, give or take, uh, is nearby. So I, I travel through there uh, frequently. And uh, in that experience and seeing the various people, I've come across a variety of people, people that, you know, essentially are like, oh, you know, looking at the social distancing marks on the ground, like, oh, why do I have to observe this? Or, you know, this is just the government trying to control me and all of us. And like, I, I've, I've seen a lot of uh, and experience heard a variety of different reactions, but it has been, I would say, I've seen a similar kind of uh, tendency that you mentioned in my own personal experience as well. And it's been uh, it's been a unique experience. One of the other things that I thought uh, you touched on that was important was just kind of the trying to stay ahead of and and be, stay up to date on the information and the kind of competing interests that you have between the scientists and the medical professionals that are kind of uh, have one thing that they like to say and what they're saying to the our leaders. And then versus what they're saying in public. And then you kind of have the capitalist influences about, you know, well, how does this affect the market? How can we get the markets and the businesses back open? The political expediency of the politicians trying to balance that and then the actual social costs and the death and the suffering that's related to the, the, the virus itself. And just kind of the balancing of that in the messaging it has been has left, I feel, uh, very us populate the people listening uh, more vulnerable than we should be. I think like you mentioned about the masks, you know, essentially what we had was uh, discouraging people from wearing masks because of uh, allegedly low community spread, which was really uh, a result of a lack of testing and mm-hmm. uh, denial. And so like 
we we knew that there was community spread and with community spread reducing the amount of droplets that are in the air from potentially asymptomatic uh, uh people with the that could have the virus or people that are pre-symptomatic that could be spreading the virus is just common sense but trying to explain people that they're wearing a mask that may actually slightly increase their chance to catch the virus because of touching their face although there isn't any conclusive research about that at all uh, about whether wearing masks uh, either actually even technically helps but it's just essentially common sense based off of the droplet resistance and then n95s uh, do actually prevent most or the reduce the likelihood of the viral particles being able to enter your airways but without going too far into that it's essentially that it left us vulnerable because we had to we didn't have the preparation of the masks that we needed to supply the healthcare workers who are still at this point over like months into when we should have been preparing and dealing with this, not being supplied with adequate uh, PPE gear to the point where they're protesting in the streets, but then, uh, and also being discouraged from speaking out publicly. And uh, I think 10 nurses got suspended, I guess, with pay because of uh, kind of disputes about PPE gear. And then, there's been various reports on Twitter about uh, basically people having their jobs threatened if they were to speak to the press about the conditions in the hospital, which is also kind of a sensitive subject about Trish trying to get information out of hospitals because of the nature of medical information in HIPAA. Right. But, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was just going to add to that. I think, you know, what you mentioned earlier about the P Diddy slash Puff Daddy slash whatever he calls himself now, um, like <laughs> infomer not infomercials, but like, uh, you know, like, um, oh, what are they called when they have these educational commercials? I can't remember the word for it. Um, public service announcements. Yes, though. thank you. Public <laughs> service announcements. But like these public service announcements, the way they're worded sometimes, at least the ones that are targeted by community, often to me, those and the discussion about like, don't hoard masks, don't buy all the masks and like shutting off the ability for us to buy proper masks, to be honest. So quote unquote, that they can go to medical professionals. What's interesting about both of those issues is that to me, they make it more about the personal instead of the the like government, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. for example, it makes it feel, it makes it sound like, well, it's black people's fault if they're out playing basketball, if they get sick, but it doesn't, it kind of like erases the real reasons why black people and other like uh, Latinos as well are more susceptible to these things, like the systemic reasons. Um, and it kind of makes like, the Navajo nation recently. I just wanted to. Yes. Add. Indigenous people as well. Exactly. And it all, all everything that's underlying there is systemic and related to, you know, class and race based discrimination over the years and like, systemic um, negligence and things like that uh, that's not talked about. And that part is sort of hidden when we say these things where it becomes a personal thing, like stay inside all you black people or like indigenous people or whatever, because that way you won't get the, get the virus, but like not taking into account the fact that like, even if we do everything right, we are still more susceptible because of preexisting conditions that have to do with other systemic negligence and whatever. But then also the fact that this whole don't hoard the mask, don't buy masks that are meant for professionals or whatever, medical professionals. The issue is that like the government is the one who dropped the ball there. Like it's not, it's not the fault of the random person who's like doing home repairs or mowing the yard or like, I don't know, doing hair or nails or whatever that bought PPE to use in the past that they happen to have those or like who bought them on mass when they heard about what was happening. It's still not that person's fault. 
it's the government's fault and like some of the hospital's fault for not properly like preparing for this sort of thing when we had warning in advance, you know, like we knew what was going on in China for a long time. We then knew what was happening in Europe and then people still waited, at least within this administration, still waited to act. Um, And I think part of it just had to do with the fact that like this government seems to think of and the Biden future potential Biden administration as well, which we can get to in a second, seems to think of everything by way, by virtue of national borders. So like, as long as we shut the borders and can quote unquote contain this, then there's no way that it can affect our population was, you know, which ignores the fact that like populations and borders are really porous right now. Like people aren't, aren't confined solely to their country of birth. Like this is not how this works. Um, And I say the Biden administration, which can kind of help us, uh, segue into that discussion, mm-hmm. but I say that because he has that they have, or I think one of the PACs has an ad out right now that's very like anti-China and sort of tries to to blame um, Trump for being the one who loves China more than Biden. Like, there's all this weird stuff going on with with kind of anti-Chinese rhetoric, and not just anti-Chinese as in like racist, you know, xenophobic stuff, which we've definitely seen explode with the coronavirus, um, but also anti-Chinese government stuff that has to do with this this weird sort of like new Cold War that's coming up. Um, and I think that's affecting both the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, so anyway, I say potential Biden administration because, of course, uh, as we have seen over the past few weeks, uh, Bernie dropped out of the race or, and um, endorsed Biden. Elizabeth Warren recently endorsed Biden. Um, and Biden's been trying to kind of put together um, a potential cabinet so that people will feel less uh, <laughs> less concerned mm. about but his potential as president with all of his cognitive issues. Um, and I think trying to reassure people that like, even if he can't really do his job, he's got enough people in his cabinet, enough technocrats who can thoughts, Richard, what are your, what are your thoughts on all of that? Oh, I mean, that worked wonders with Trump. That was the same idea they had there. Right? But I mean, I guess uh, Biden doesn't, if you're not a voter, he's not going to bully you quite as much as Trump does his own stuff, I guess. But uh, I, for me, it's been, uh, I mean, I kind of saw it coming. I, I like, I, I, and Bernie didn't, you know, make any secret of it that he was going to campaign for essentially anybody that ended up as the Democratic nominee. Maybe he might have drawn the line at Bloomberg, maybe, but that, that wasn't entirely clear either, whether if Bloomberg became the nominee, he wouldn't be out there campaigning for him as well. And so, like, as... Uh, shocking or devastating as that might have been for some of his supporters it it didn't come as a surprise to me that it kind of went this way once once the democratic party started pushing people to vote during the pandemic and didn't do anything to try to uh, accommodate a a delay and so they were still saying that they were going to penalize people it was to me it became clear that uh, they were the rallying around biden was going to solidify and they were going to do whatever they had to do in order to push the narrative that Bernie had to drop out or it was basically his fault that people were going to catch coronavirus. And so I don't necessarily begrudge him on that front, but personally, but I guess it's also, I just, I guess for me, just, I didn't have as much confidence or faith in the Bernie Sanders having success in the democratic nomination from the onset. And so even when he kind of hit a high watermark and it looked like he was probably like, essentially he was going to take the nomination if Democrats didn't consolidate around Biden as they did. 
I I still was skeptical that he was going to end up clinching it, and that I I, I thought, according to the information, that he basically had it uh, sewed up. But uh, I was even a bit surprised that Democrats were able to just essentially uh, abandon what they had basically all agreed on at the start of the race, which was anybody besides Bernie would be better than Joe Biden. And when it came down to just Joe Biden and Bernie, I thought it was going to take a little bit longer for them to consolidate around Biden, but it was uh, rapid and immediate. And then also considering the very, from the start with Iowa, which uh, essentially, essentially to me is definitionally election fraud because the math said one person won and the democratic party said another person won uh it calls into question every election every democratic primary after that and with the all the conditions it's hard to for me to put a whole lot of faith in that process and so i guess for me it's been more of a okay so bernie did certainly politically activate a lot of people what is it that uh can keep them from being sheepdogged into the democratic party and go through this cycle uh, more times like many people already have before they came to Bernie uh, and get them over towards more radical direct action and organizing that can have the kinds of effects and changes that they want to see since politically, I don't think that's going to be uh, a viable route in the near future for the type of immediate and radical changes that we need. Right. Oh, by the way, pardon the potential noise that you all hear in the background. There are people like speaking of what I mentioned earlier, like people just hanging out in front of my house right now um, all together unmasked and yeah, making a bunch of noise. So not social distancing anyway. Um, no mm. shade. Uh, but yeah. Uh, and, and much like I said earlier, it fits into that uh, stereotype, sadly. Anyway, um, but I think you're right on that front in terms of like what do we do now in terms of mobilization I, I feel like there was not a backup plan like it's just sort of like okay we're gonna endorse uh biden and everybody vote for biden now like stop complaining you know like this is it this is the end result of what you guys were working on and uh, at least that's the democratic party sort of message right and i think some democratic um people who like consider themselves um allies i guess or representatives of the democratic party in some way and even some bernie people um and obviously warren people i think it's i don't know i mean first of all i just i feel like this whole voting during a coronavirus pandemic is really irresponsible um to even have forwarded that like tom perez needs to be taken out of his position quite frankly for this um and for encouraging that despite what medical professionals were saying would be best. And of course, you know, Biden himself was saying, well, I'm listening to science, but like all of science was saying like, stay your ass at home um, while they were encouraging people to vote in Michigan and Wisconsin and all these other places. In um, Illinois, where they shut down a bunch of polling places and right. concentrated them in predominantly uh, low income and black uh, senior facilities. And that's a completely right. democratically controlled state. So, or Democrat controlled state, so that you can't blame a couple Republicans for any of that. And yeah. Illinois is, is shot past Washington into the top 10 for uh, most affected states. And so, like, the yeah, to me, it's almost essentially manslaughter. Sorry to interrupt, but I just no, it's you're right. Enraging. I agree. And also, like, right now, Detroit is another place. And I remember Michigan was one of the other states that was kind of voting on the cusp of this explosive, you know, coronavirus. Um, outbreak, you know, like not not the outbreak itself, but like the uptick in in numbers 
um, in places like Detroit and other major cities in Michigan. And I remember that being one of the things that was in the back of my mind, like, wait a second, like, didn't they just hold a vote? Um, and could people have potentially been in, been infected then, you know, um, transmitting the, the virus then en masse? Um, and I think it's just, like I said, it's irresponsible. And I agree with you in terms of it being manslaughter. I mean, you're literally putting people out there knowing what's going on and knowing that they can get sick and knowing again that the largest demographic that's going to be voting for your party in many of these states is going to be black, elderly, you know, like lower income potentially. Like this is this is insane. Like the fact that they didn't really I don't know. There was no, there was not enough, I think, done by the party itself, but also even by the candidates. I think it was just irresponsible. And I think everyone should have suspended, like everyone being Biden and Sanders. I think Sanders did more uh, to this effect than Biden, of course, but I think they both should have suspended their campaigns temporarily while this was going on and literally said to the Democratic Party, we are not going to continue to be um, running if you guys don't push all of the the dates for the primary up a little bit, you know, or, like, or push them back a bit. I know that they had some challenges from uh, Republicans, which you hinted at, like there was a legislative issue in some states, I believe it was Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken, where Republicans actually like went to the Supreme Court and made them, um, you know, like basically didn't allow the governor to change the date for the primaries. But this is, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like there was a lot done that the there was a lot that the party could have done in advance to protect people and they failed. They could have planned on having mail in ballots or something um considering what was going on. We should be have we should have paper ballots and mail in ballots anyway as an option, but still, that aside, I think people were just not prepared um and it just shows all the like holes that are riddled in the party but also just this country like the government as a whole, I think the government system as a whole is really sick and like itself needs to be, not to sound like Marianne Williamson, um, but itself <laughs> needs to be rethought and healed. And I think that rethinking and healing can be done through like systematic overhaul, which is what we really need. Um, the other thing I just wanted to add before we can, you know, talk about something else, but um, I think, I don't know, watching, watching the quick, the quick endorsement, as you sort of hinted at as well, was jarring expected of course but at the same time jarring just because i don't think there was anything that was leveraged out of these endorsements it seems like they didn't ask for anything they were just sort of like okay biden's the nominee everybody vote for him um and it would have been nice to have seen more coming to the table about what we needed uh to get done and what what needs to be done to like secure uh I don't know the party's future or people's they mainly the the population's future, right? Um there was nothing done on Medicare for all. There was nothing done on job security. Um there was nothing done on you know like educational access, none of that. And I just feel like right now all three of those things are like at the forefront with the coronavirus crisis and we didn't really, we as in progressives, socialists, people on the left didn't really get anything. Um, and so it's frustrating to me that, as you said, it does feel like yet another like sheep dogging effort. And I, you know, I used to get mad. Like I know Counterpunch used to say this all the time. The people at Counterpunch would constantly tweet about this in 2016. It's Bernie's a sheepdog, Bernie's a sheepdog. And and for those who don't know, sheepdogging in this instance just means like a candidate who seems like he or she is on the left, but then actually helps like cull um, people, encourage them to vote for the candidate that's to his or her right in the end. Um, and I do feel like, 
I don't know, now that this is the second time in a row that this has happened, it does feel like there, I don't know, like there's something going on with him that he just doesn't, I don't know if he doesn't think he can win, if he's so afraid of Trump that he just pushes for whatever candidate that's not Trump, or if there is really some sort of like controlled opposition aspect to some of what these so-called progressives are doing. And I think the question that's in the back of my mind is like, how do we counter that? Like, what can we do as the average citizen to then push for left candidates to remain on the left and to push for candidates who do end up endorsing these candidates that are don't give a crap about us? How do we actually have the power to like make them do stuff. I mean, because at this point, it just kind of feels like if we're going to lay down that easily, then what's the point of voting for quote unquote leftist candidates if they're going to run this way, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it becomes it. I've, I didn't become a communist uh, because of like, you know, I was raised that way or, you know, I watched a pr- one particular documentary or something. It was a, a long process for me of moving from a more cent- centrist or centrist uh, neoliberal politic and asking questions of the politic and of the representatives and, you know, of the bodies of that represented that and getting unsatisfactory answers until uh, I kept moving left and finding, you know, better answers than I found when I was more towards the center until I landed where I was, where I'm finding the best answers. And so when I look at something like a situation like this, it's not that I come from it from a, Oh, you know, I know better or that, you know, I I've been manipulated by communist propaganda or anything like that. It's that I've kind of had a systematic approach to trying to understand the political world that I live in and how to affect change. And I arrived where I have as a result of, you know, I, I voted for Obama. I, I was at a caucus and uh, became a delegate for Obama back. It was one of my, it was the first election that I really participated in. And I, ha- I was full of hope and all those types of things. And to see what happened and uh, as his, his campaign progressed, it became clear. And then as his administration went on, it became even clearer. And second term, it was just, it was just abundantly clear that this wasn't going to lead to the kinds of, change in my political and my personal world that I was both expecting and needed and all those types of things. And so I kept looking and that's, that's it. It becomes frustrating then when uh, people act as if uh, voting, like, you know, essentially immediately falling in line behind Biden is the mature and thoughtful thing to do. It's like, for me, it's like that's it, it, it rings as the complete opposite. And to the question that you asked um, and, or that you present, I think very importantly is and then how do we affect the change either on these politicians or on the system itself? And as far as I've seen, the only effective, uh, consistent or consistently effective, although not always a successful method is direct mass action. And uh, essentially, the politicians fall in line with the people that that's the only way that you get that. And the hardest part is getting all the people on the same page. And it's usually a catastrophe or something like that, that has a more widespread and universal effect that is able to crystallize in enough of the population, uh, is mind that the, the, that their interests are more aligned with their neighbors and the, both locally and nationally and even internationally than it is with the leaders of, either their nation or local locality and so on and so forth. And that 
that catastrophic crystallization, I think, can be seen in the, the COVID crisis in that we've had to, we have to change our economy, you know, for like six months ago, if you told somebody we had to shut down the economy in order to think about what we're going to, how we're going to restructure it for climate change, it would be absurd. But COVID provided a window of opportunity and the system is desperate to get people back into a, a system where their job controls their survival and linking, keeping those two inextricably linked is uh, necessary to maintain the capitalist system. And this provides an opportunity. And I feel like the immediate kind of get behind Biden thing is an attempt to subvert that energy. And so like that, what like the motives is I guess secondary to me to the the outcome and that it does in effect to me subvert a lot of that energy. Anybody that was politically activated and motivated by the things that Bernie was advocating is now uh, encouraged to accept basically nothing as uh, acceptable concessions. I think uh, Biden. Uh, was lowering the Medicare age or something, but it wasn't even as bold as what Hillary proposed in 2016. So it, it demonstrated a step to the right, which I think is also echoed historically from Nixon supporting the ACA and uh, a UBI and uh, like all these types of things to those things being seen as too radical, even for the Democratic Party and obviously an even more right-wing authoritarian radical uh, president. And so I for me, I did encapsulate that. I just guess it's it's frustrating when the people that are skeptical of endorsing and supporting the two party system and just falling in line behind Biden are treated as though they're not politically mature enough to to act responsibly and vote for Biden rather than they're just human beings that are reacting to the realities of, you know, the accusations against Biden, his political history and all of that. And then in juxtaposition or in, uh, 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 I guess, uh, not contrast, but I guess just next to what we see politically as uh, some of the same stories. I just watched I'm Not Your Negro again. Some of the same things that ba or Baldwin was saying then are completely applicable now. And there's just no excuse for us to be in the same place 50, 60 years later. I agree a hundred percent. And there absolutely isn't. And I think that there's this, I agree with you that this, the painting of people who are opposing what's going on right now is irresponsible or like immature in particular is, is super offensive because I mean, I think what's happening is they're thinking it's just like about political preference. Like, oh, I like this candidate better because that's how they think of politics, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for us, it's like, it's literally issues. And I think, as you mentioned, this crisis is exposing a lot of things that they said couldn't be done that are actually being done because they have to be done. Um, because now it's not just poor people who are suffering. It's also the middle class that's suffering. It's also potentially wealthy people who are suffering because their businesses are starting to fail or on the cusp of failing or can't make as much revenue, et cetera. I think that there's a degree of this that because, because the the problem became a became a, a bit more or like slightly more universal, right? It expanded. I think the scope of poverty, the scope of of um, you know, like just having a lack of resources, the scope of even fear over health issues, it expanded because Quickly, of that. I, I yeah. was just going to say that, like, basically, it exposed how close even affluent people are on the edge. You know, these businesses oh, yeah. only had a month or two of survivability without the 
consistency of the world that they were used to. And so like the expectation of individuals to have anything more than that is absurd, but I just, exactly. like, it exposed that continue. It absolutely did. And that, because of that, I think then people are like, Oh, maybe we should do something. Now what's interesting is that like celebrities still aren't quite there yet. It's like celebrities are still trying to sing their way into, I don't know, saving the world or something, which enrages me actually. I'm like, y'all need to be donating. Mm. Y'all need to be like, and don't, don't have a fundraiser. Like we don't need to donate to y'all. Y'all need to donate to us. Like you all need to be writing the checks. And, and basically, I mean, to be honest, if I were a celebrity or like a business mogul or whatever, I would pose a direct threat to this government by, by buying the PPE myself, by providing hospitals with money, by doing whatever. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me that these people who are multimillionaires and billionaires are asking me to donate when, you know, we're the ones who are without a job. We're the ones without access to healthcare right now. We're the ones who are like shit out of luck. They're asking us to send money. Like what the heck, you know, like they should be sending money. And someone had mentioned, I think it was, I don't even remember who it was. Some comedian or something was just like, you know, why isn't um, Jeff Bezos like going and donating all the PPE? I mean, he runs Amazon. Why is he holding up a, he's got like a donation page on the Amazon front page right now. Mm -hmm. Like the Amazon.com, there's like a donate to COVID relief button. And it's like, come on, dude. Like Amazon sales went up exponentially in this crisis because no one can go to the grocery store and feel safe or go to the whatever store you need to buy stuff from and feel safe right now or even work in these places so like come on i mean it's it's absurd um and i just i'm i'm very angry and i think that anger is is the way a lot of people feel and we are saying to them to them being like the powers that be, the government, even the Democratic Party, like the status quo does not work. We are seeing right now the status quo being exposed as completely, in, like it doesn't work. It's just completely incompetent at this point as a means of saving us. And that's everyone now. Um, and maybe not everyone, because like on this, one of these stupid uh, celebrity sing-along type things that was on last night, um, I saw Jimmy Kimmel like being patronizing and giving um, a Latino delivery guy like a big tip and giving make his wife had made a pie for him and he had made a pizza for him and he's like handing him these hot dishes while the guy's trying to give Jimmy Kimmel his food. And it was one of those very like, oh, look at me being kind to the little people. Look at me like being charitable in this one moment. Like that's going to freaking save anything. Like that's going to fix these much bigger problems that technically their money could fix. And so it was just, I think right now the response from, from like centrists and people who consider themselves quote unquote liberal, but who are like bathing in dollars is, is it, I mean, I don't know. I wonder where the breaking point is for everyone else and what that's going to look like, because we obviously can't protest. There have been some protests that so there's, I think it's very important that we differentiate between some of the protests that are being held right now by people who are actually like protesting the limited action done on unemployment benefits. There's like a group of people that has been protesting about that. Um, but most of them have been like staying in their cars and stuff or like finding other creative ways to protest. Same thing with like nurses and doctors who've been protesting. And then there's an element Ab uh, of prison abolition too. That, yes, exactly. No, they, thank you for including that. Um, but there are also there's also an element of protesters that are definitely right wing, like fascists. Let's be honest, they're literally fascists. They're saying they'd rather die of COVID nineteen than stay quarantined. Which, like, again, 
is not, a, it's not about you. Like it's not about you as an individual. It's about the threat that you could potentially pose to other people. If you, for example, get sick and then what, like, what about the people who are more vulnerable than you? So it, it becomes this like very selfish fascistic, because that's another thing. Like, I think they see it as solely a black disease or solely an issue for poor people or whatever. Um, they don't have to worry about they're somehow special, just like when we see all these things about people who don't want to wash their hands, who don't want to shower, who don't want to clean themselves. I think there's like a, a racialized component of superiority about this disease as well, like about about the virus, I should say, um, that's also coming to fore. Like, I think people are thinking that they are somehow um, not susceptible because of whiteness or because of wealth. Um, and I think it's really, I don't know, but I wonder, I wonder what does it look like as you mentioned, to have mass action in a moment like this, especially for people who are the most vulnerable, who are working in grocery stores, who are working in pharmacies, who are the delivery people, what about them? Like, how do they protest if they're not only trying to stay alive and afloat economically, but also literally trying to stay alive um, amid easily easily being exposed to to COVID and not having any form of recourse and social safety net, economic or or health wise, and the there's even the added burden of kind of you know, if we're not there doing this job, then it might not get done. And then you know what about society and such? And so like there's several layers, and I wish I had you know simple answers. I have been looking and like searching for kind of you know information and finding things. You know, organizing uh, tenants has been uh, I think a valuable. Uh, service that's been provided that has been able to be accomplished with limited actual, uh, you know, while still observing social distancing, basically, and that uh, also amplified in its uh, accessibility as a result of the COVID in that a lot of people are unable to make rent. And it, they're a lot more susceptible to, you know, arguments about why, you know, a rent strike and tenants union is an effective defense mechanism against uh, exploitative, uh, you know, landlords uh, when they already can't make rent anyway. So having an actual, having a legitimate reason rather than feeling as though they're inadequate and insufficient at, you know, providing for themselves or their families, uh, knowing and having an explanation that, uh, indicts not just the, their individual landlord, but a system that exploits all of the tenants together and see their kind of their class interests united is one of the things that I found. One of the things that came to my mind, but I can't speak to it because I'm not in that position, was just uh, one of the things we've read about and seen exemplified in particularly in South America is about essentially workers taking over workplaces. And what I thought of would have been uh, great to see, but I like, you know, uh, the, I think the preparation, lack of preparation for this moment wasn't only seen in the administration and government, but I think, uh, there's room for self-criticism among, uh, folks of the left and you know, communists and organizers in general, not to say that like, they're not working to do these things, but, uh, we weren't as prepared as it, we sh could have or should have been in order to capitalize on this moment at the its peak but essentially uh seeing workers take over their workplaces and produce goods that were needed instead of whatever profit driving thing that they were there to produce in the first place would have been an amazing thing to see uh 
And I think that there's still probably opportunities for that where people are being forced or, you know, encouraged, forced, whatever, to go into workplaces that are producing products that may not have, uh, may not seem rational in this moment, but the equipment and the stuff could be used uh, for something more practical, say for the kind of masks or something like that. Some, some basic gear, PPE mm -hmm. gear and those types of uh, things. That would be, I think, an amazing way to s demonstrate solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the communities that are around those facilities and then also have a practical and meaningful impact. And right. to me, it, 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 show it, dem it would demonstrate the functionality of direct action in that instead of talking to the local council who talks to the you know congressman who talks to the governor who talks to and eventually maybe something gets done three to six months down the road the people that are going to end up doing it anyway just go do it because they know it needs to get done we've seen that some, well first of all we've seen definitely some worker organized actions coming out of Amazon um, that I think we should definitely mm. acknowledge. Um, but I think also where we've, and, and, and like Instacart had a strike, although I don't know what the result was of the strike. Um, I need to look that up because I, I've, I've, I, every time I try to look up something about it, it just keeps showing me that they held a strike. Uh, but I don't know what the final result was in that. To me, it seems like they didn't get what they were asking for. I know they were asking for a pay raise, um, better sick leave options and PPE while on the job doing deliveries. But from the best of my knowledge, they did not receive all of those gains, if any. Um, and considering the number of people that are unemployed right now, which I know people have been citing 16 million, but last time I saw it was uh, projected to be 22 million next week, um, that there are going to be a lot of people flocking to jobs like this in the service sector because they are desperate and still awaiting their payment from the government, which, you know, like we haven't gotten, I don't know about you, if you've gotten it, um, you know, we have, have not. Yeah. <laughs> like we did our taxes and there we're on, you know, the, the um, direct deposit and all that, but we haven't gotten anything yet. When we look it up, it says currently unavailable. Like you can look up your info on the IRS page. Um, and it just says like, it's just like blank, you know? Um, but I say that just because I know that a lot of people are trying to just find jobs anywhere, even if they're insecure health wise, um, and potentially precarious economically as well. But I don't know what the result was of that strike. And I would say also what I've seen in our area is that there were like some wine and alcohol distilleries and um, even like sportswear companies, like small businesses in the local, like local businesses that were converting their factories to basically create masks, visors, like shields, face shields and things like that. Um, and so I think that I agree with you that there is some potential there, but it's happening on a smaller scale because all of the larger companies are like kind of holding up things because they want more money from the government. Um, mm. And and I think, and what's enraging again to add to more things that I'm enraged about is the fact that like the Trump administration has not still has not really like used its authority to nationalize things. They refuse to do that. They refuse to really use some some like War Powers Act thing. I don't remember the exact name of the legislation, but basically where you are, you as the government, um, you force private companies to convert their factories to like production hubs for essential items. Um, and so like if you're going to if Trump's going to act like this is as big of a deal as World War Two, then maybe he should actually put money where his mouth is and like do that, like make these companies do their freaking jobs and like stop 
pussyfooting around the fact that like we, we have people literally dying by the hundreds of thousands at this point um, around the world. Like we probably need to, I don't know, take some companies and make them like force them to, to make things like masks and face shields and other medical equipment because I just, and, and of course the defunding of the WHO as well as another thing on the list of like, what the hell, like why now? And this, I think kind of dovetails into what I was talking about earlier with regard to China, because a lot of the stuff around the drama with the WHO has been framed as this like, Oh, the WHO is like secretly working for China or whatever. And I think any criticism that one may have of the WHO, all of that aside, um, even like questions about uh, covering up for China or whatever, like the the rumors that are being thrown around about this, the fact of the matter is that they are an important element to like resolving this crisis and potentially finding a solution. Um, And so as the U.S. is defunding them, I think this is where like, potentially where, I don't know, some wealthy people could step in and at least send funds. My only concern is, as you had mentioned sort of briefly, um, you've touched on this with regard to climate change. I think my only concern with having to rely on billionaires and millionaires to help us out of this problem is that when it comes time for these agencies to protect them when they're violating our rights or when these people are violating, you know, environmental protections and whatnot, then I think these organizations are going to be um they're gonna they're gonna feel like they owe them and they might literally owe them right i think this sometimes becomes a money for silence sort of thing um so that's i think my the concern in the back of my mind because i know that when we had talked before about what role does like the billionaire play in resolving the climate crisis and we were saying that's probably not a good idea because then they're just gonna like it's gonna be hush money you know and so i think the concern here is when billionaires seemingly do charitable things, is it just hush money? Is it just image money? Um, and how do we kind of resolve that whole, that issue too? Because if the government's not stepping in, are we then going to become reliant upon private businesses, small or large, and private citizens who have money um, to get us out of this? That's, I don't know, something in the back of my mind as well. Well, yeah, and I think uh, the, like, I, I don't mean to like belittle or uh, to make light of any of the uh, efforts that have been done. You mentioned the Amazon workers and the nursing protesters, and there's just been a lot of efforts out there. I guess it's just a kind of a a uh, a resent or a uh, I don't know a, the word I'm looking for, but a begrudging kind of recognition of the insufficiency. Uh, of of these efforts to kind of like you mentioned for instance you know tackle the kind of power plays that billionaires are able to make within our uh, democratic structure and all these other kind of influences that are at play and you mentioned the who so internationally i think is also an important aspect it's it, to me, I guess it just feels insufficient and that insufficiency scares me, but I feel like it's not an insufficiency as a result of uh, a lack of kind of uh, an effort or a, think, a thought put into it, but more of a, a result of uh, are the people that ostensibly say that they're, they agree with us not acting as if they agree with us. And, and particularly when they're in positions and critical moments uh, when it becomes very important you know like uh and so i i i guess one of the things that with the who the 
in the U.S. defunding it that kind of it brings to my mind is that internationally there's a solidarity required that the left in the U.S. I think lacks, and I think that also has a lot to do with why it it isn't uh, quite sufficient and the, why there's a lot of division. And I think the China thing and Biden kind of encapsulates and highlights that in, in mm-hmm. ways, and that the that that kind of rhetoric has buy-in from both parties and that is more popular in the American political scene than a unit, like a more collectivist and unifying force that we see on the more out uh, outstretches of the left. And I think increasing that without uh, something that we've kind of talked about before is, you know, without acquiescing to white supremacy has been difficult. And uh, I don't know if the Sanders candidacy made that easier or harder, really. And so I I guess one of the aspects I I did want to touch on with the the kind of international and how China is being treated in this is that they are essentially at this moment the industrial and economic powerhouse that is bailing the world out of this situation to the degree that it can be. Uh, The U.S. is clearly behind, is printing money just to try and keep our country from basically going belly up, which would have a domino effect on economies around the world. And we're in, in an effort to do that. We're starting to talk about opening back up without the kind of adequate PPE gear and testing because uh, essentially they they did this trial and saw how who was dying and where they were dying and the essentially made a calculation that if uh, 20 30,000 more people have to die in order to open up the economy for a few weeks that might be worth it if it's the right people and that that is terrifying which people and we know which ones they mean exactly and i mean it, it's a terrifying concept and so like that's uh, like where i'm at and so I I know that organizing and direct mass action is our only hope, but I also see its insufficiency in enabling in inability to stop or confront some of the kind of power dynamics at play. And so uh, I feel like the unification or the unifying aspect of the suffering of COVID can potentially be helpful, but at the same time, there's another group of people that are so terrified of becoming one of those marginalized people that they'll be the first to pick up a stick and start prodding people to, to vote for Biden or whatever it may be. And then threatening to hit them with it if they don't. Or too, like, I mean, I think this discussion about opening up the country is really scary. Like it's very scary to me actually, because especially because we've seen second and third waves uh, or potential third waves in parts of East Asia. Um, But I, I think, you know, what you mentioned about the selectivity, the kind of like which people are expendable bit reminds me again, so much of our discussions about climate change and how, um, you know, like a lot of the climate change drama has been almost like our concern has been outsourced to the third world, quote unquote, like, oh, that's their problem. We don't have to worry about that because we have enough people who are going to like, you know, we're kind of like, I don't want to say um, somewhat sheltered from it, but we are to a degree, just geographically, we're a bit sheltered from it. And in comparison to other parts of the world where they have, they're more susceptible to drought or certain um, 
quote unquote natural disasters and things like that. Um, and also lack of infrastructure and whatnot that makes them even more susceptible. Um, and so kind of ignoring these things that are happening elsewhere because it's going to come to us later. And I think people are starting to do a sort of microcosmic version of that with the COVID-19 crisis in the United States by saying it's these communities that are going to suffer more. So if some of them die, not that big of a deal. But what's irrational about this is the fact, like if you're thinking like a right winger, if you're thinking about someone who wants to do this, the reality is these you need these people that you're basically willing to let die because they're the ones who serve you. They're the ones who who stock the groceries. They're the ones who serve your food. They're the ones who make these deliveries. So like, I guess, are they just expecting that everything's going to go to robots and computers overnight? Like, are we just going to have automated Instacart drivers next week? Is that the plan? And is that why they're considering these, these people like sort of expendable or you know, like the, the disposable people of the society. Um, and, and it makes me wonder, like, what's the backup plan when, when the majority of service workers literally die? Like, it, you know what I mean? If that's, if that's what we're looking at for a future, then what's going to happen when, when these communities are made even more vulnerable by an opening up, if they're not prepared to provide workers with proper gear, that's what's going to happen, right? Like, What's the backup plan here? Yeah, and we know there's essential workers working right now that aren't able to get the the gear that they should have to protect themselves or even just to protect the public from them, like because they have to work even if they get a cough or, you know, they get a they can't just self-quarantine in a lot of these situations because there's no certainty or guarantee that they're going to have a job uh, when they stop their quarantine or that they'll have a check during that and they'll be able to make rent and there's no certainty that their landlord isn't going to threaten them even if the government governor said that they can't evict them and it's like there's people living in real world circumstances where the the threats and the 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 kind of the the fear of what the outcome will be isn't as certain as the landlords who already have federal legislation that says hey if you need 12 months in order before you can pay your mortgage you can do that no penalties associated like whereas the renters aren't guaranteed that there aren't going to be penalties and even if they even if there is some order from a governor or some legislation they they have a familiarity most most renters that just because the it says one thing isn't necessarily how it's executed in the real world and so like in with lease agreements and so on and so forth and uh, all these types of situations i think people it, it's a very stressful situation that people are put in and it's it's intentional in my view essentially is it's like the part of reopening and and part of that, I think you mentioned like a backup plan is they know that the climate change is going to be causing a massive influx of, of, of desperate people. So, you know, might as well open up some jobs for them, I guess, you know, it's like the it's a cynical and sick calculation, but it's hard not to imagine that at least these thinking people can't see that that's at least how it appears to an outside observer that that must be how you're thinking about this or you're just not thinking about it at all, which I don't know which one's more terrifying. About that, yeah. I mean, they're both terrifying. I, I don't think we can weigh them against one another. Um, I, yeah, I. I mean, I always feel like I'm the one who's making this the Debbie Downer um, side of things, but it really is, I think, something that we should be concerned about and watching out for. The other thing I meant to mention earlier too is that, along with what you were saying about Biden and sort of electoral politics and whatnot that um, there is definitely an element of this that makes me feel like so much is going on in the background that we're not paying attention to. Um, and I think, 
you know, while we're cooped up in the house or, you know, people are working their, their minimum wage jobs to survive and just trying to like keep their heads down and stay safe, that there's a lot in terms of our civil liberties and rights that are being taken away. There's all sorts of economic giveaways, financial giveaways being done for the corporate uh, class and the upper class. And I think that we, because they know that we're at a disadvantage in terms of our ability to protest right now, our ability to mobilize, that there's a real, um, I don't know, there's a risk that we're watching a lot being taken away from us. And when I say that, I'm not trying to sound like, again, one of these like right wingers that unfortunately I've seen some leftists defending um, because they're quote unquote representative of the working class, which like whatever, I don't think that's accurate at all. And I think a lot of these um, protests with like, men with guns and stuff are astroturfed. Um, But I I think that this discussion is making me really think again about like, you know, which groups are they defending and why and what's being taken away from whom and why. And I think our sometimes for some people on the left, the priority is wrong and the direct it's like misdirected, misguided attention that's being focused on certain groups primarily because they are predominantly white. Um, And what we're seeing is, is a real distortion of, I don't know, again, like where our priorities should be and what we should be looking at and why um, and we, what we should be focusing on in terms of a lot of this legislation as well, like what's missing from our discussion. And I think what's really missing from our discussion is like, again, what's, or not again, but like what is also missing from the discussion, excuse me, is like what's to be done about supply chains? Um, what's to be done about making sure that undocumented workers are protected? I know, uh, I think California did something recently to sort of make sure that people who were not, or at least to try to attempt to help undocumented workers, but like they're the ones that are really uh, on the front lines as well. And working in factories, working in meat supply companies or like uh, working in meat supply factories, working in slaughterhouses, working in, um, you know, farms. And once they die, once they start getting sick, which is what we've already been seeing happen, their bosses are not going to do anything. These numbers are going to be underreported and the supply chain is eventually going to come to a screeching halt. And I think the concern for me is like, just not even thinking about it in terms of like, uh, Oh, what about people's lives? Right. But just from a purely, if you're going to be selfish, what happens when the food stops? Right. And I don't think it seems like there's not been a real discussion of this. I've seen some hints at it here and there, but like, it seems like everyone's just kind of riding along with this weird false sense of security that like, we're always going to have something to eat. We're always going to have something because Americans don't really go through food shortages like you see in other countries. Mm. Um, But like, what's going to happen then? Now for me personally, I obviously care about the workers. I care about people who are being affected by this. I care about undocumented workers. Like that's not my primary concern. It's just not making sure that I have food. But like, I think, if you are thinking of it from that perspective, from like, let's say the government, right. Or I don't know, slightly like wealthier people or people who maybe don't care about undocumented workers, but who do care about having food on the table. It's an interesting question in that, like, well, what, what are you going to do? And uh, it, it does seem as though a lot of these people you see, I feel like I see it when I look at the stock market as well, is that they just, they can't even imagine the United States collapsing in the ways that it, it seems to be on track to in many ways. And like, as it was like before it managed to correct its uh, approach to the COVID crisis uh, to the degree that it has in that, like it did seem for a while that 
the United States was going to try and just push through it like uh, the UK was or did for an extended period of time. And uh, it seems as though that that kind of approach is what's being looked at beyond this particular situation and that like they know that decisions that we make today will have decade-long ramifications on the other end of this for climate and uh, for other aspects of our economy and such and they're essentially gambling on the, the idea that we just won't let it fall apart that somehow we'll just make it work even if we don't have a plan and uh i think it it relies on a group of people or groups of people, you know, the immigrant farm workers and, you know, low income workers, people that have had to do these things in order to survive. And that can't, that that's not enough. If the reason why they're not doing it is because they're uh, uh, there's a viral spread that is sick at making them sick and unable to work or, and or killing them in mass. Like the, the, you can't just, you know, threaten them into showing up because the the only other option is just to keep replacing them and as you've seen most people have probably seen that a lot of these companies that are have been having people protest because they're not having adequate gear and they're finding people that are infected in their facilities and not doing adequate wipe or uh, cleansings of the facilities afterwards and so on and so forth they're all massively hiring like that's their solution is to find new bodies to to put in the place and it's 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 gross in that these mm-hmm. are their people they're human beings that have families and needs and like the basic needs that they need to be met. We can afford because we just gave out trillions of dollars to the people that were supposed to trickle it down. But one of the things that they're finding out now is that the, some people's checks that were sent out or that are going to be sent out or were supposed to be deposited managed to get past the federal government from taking them. But then <laughs> if they were uh, behind at their bank where the, it was going to be deposited, that money just went to the bank. Mm-hmm. who also got federal aid to give out loans and all those types of things. So the bank's doing fine, doesn't need that check, but it just took it from somebody who des- most likely desperately needed it just to make ends meet. And so like, I don't know what their plan is for the, if, you know, when the evictions can't, aren't protected against by state law or uh, when the supply chain starts to break down because the meat packers are sick and then the communities around them are sick or the, you know, the farm workers are getting sick and like the food is rotting in the fields. And mm-hmm. like we're seeing these things because our system right. doesn't have a way to accommodate for this this type of situation because it's basically always on the edge of collapse. And the only way it's able to perpetuate itself is by not having any sort of major event come in and throw that off. And this major event is throwing that off. And essentially, we got Biden and Trump who both just want to put it back together. Mm-hmm. And then the, there's the left that knows is like, no, if we put it back together how it was before this, we are all we're putting the entirety of the planet or of the human species on the planet in jeopardy. And, and millions, hundreds of millions of people will die and billions will be relocated because we didn't take this opportunity to redesign our economy in a sustainable way. I mean, instead, we're definitely we, artists. I was just going to finish off and say, instead, we're just trying to repair it and put it back together to what we know doesn't work and will still be susceptible to this. Go on. It's, it's the Humpty Dumpty response, right? It's like, yeah. we know this, we know this shit doesn't work. We know it falls apart. We're going to keep putting it back together until it just cracks. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. And I'm, 
what I'm, what is scary to me is that we're already seeing it, right? Like I mentioned about the food supply stuff. We've definitely already, I've seen reports of um, meat packing. The meat packing industry is just like coming apart at the seams right now, which like as someone who's, you know, not really a big meat person, I, I go back and forth between being vegetarian and vegan and stuff. Like I'm like, good, let it on. Part of me is like, good, let it rot. You know? <laughs> um, like we shouldn't be doing like, like I don't know. Uh, industrial, the whole like industrial meat stuff and, mm-hmm. um, and agriculture, what is it like animal agriculture and whatnot is a really messed up system anyway. So on the one hand, as I see these things, as I see the stock market crash and stuff, you're like, good, like maybe it's all coming to an end now and we can like do something better. But then what I'm seeing in reality is that the do something better is not happening and we're doing something worse, right? We're like the mm-hmm. response from the government and from like people who are on the more conservative side has been worse, like making things worse. Um, you know, privatizing so many industries, more industries, taking away from small business, taking away from, you know, the average citizen, whatever, to benefit the ultra wealthy and the, the hyper um, hyper capitalist side of things. So on the Le- one hand, leaning into the nationalism. Yeah. But like national, they should be leaning in is leaning into like nationalizing, but instead they're leaning <laughs> into the nationalism, which doesn't beat us. Um, but I think too, that like what's, what's happening is despite my moments of optimism about these things, I recognize the reality. And I think that there is a really big risk, um, that there's going to be a domino effect um, because we are going to, we're seeing the meatpacking industry already get it. We're going to see agriculture um, in terms of like basic food stuffs, get it. We're going to then start to see, I think packaged foods get it because as more and more people get sick, the, even these industries that, that make packaged foods are going to run out of employees, you know, and they can't do everything by computer yet. And so it's going to be real scary. And I think not just the, I don't think just the government response is scary um, because if I were in charge of things, you know, I would just nationalize all these industries because that give everybody product, you know, like PPE, give everybody extensions on their healthcare and stuff like that, you know, nationalize healthcare, all of it. And if you want to have some industries function, you just have to make sure that there's a safety net for the employees. Uh, but they're not going to do that. And so my concern is that like, eventually we're going to get to the point where people are literally like, I hate to say it, but I think committing acts of violence towards one another for these things. We already see people fighting over freaking toilet paper. So what do you think they're going to do when they say there's no more food, right? What do you think Americans are going to do when that happens? And when the government doesn't go around sending us, I don't know, like what I call care packages, but would really be like survival boxes, right? Like what we see in some poorer Mm -hmm. countries like Venezuela, where they do do that. The government does do that. We're not going to see any sort of like welfare aid. And if we do see something like that, they're going to be like, just go to the grocery store and buy it yourself. We're not going to get a box every week with like food stuff in it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not Mm going to be like that. It should be, but that's not what's going to happen. Absolutely. We saw it. We see these long lines of cars lined up at, uh, you know, the, I think a, a food, food store actually did and, and like it was food banks at first and it's like starting to be grocery stores, but it's eventually when people start getting in those lines, waiting for four or five hours and then getting to the front and realizing that there's no more food, yep. they're going to stop waiting in the lines. Yeah. Like, that's just yep. like, they're, you're not going to wait five hours in line to find out that there isn't any food for you because you, your family's got to eat. So you're going to find the food. You're going to get the food. That's right. what's gonna and, happen. And I'm concerned <laughs> about violence. Like I'm I'm serious when I say that. And maybe it's like the mom side of me kicking in. Like maybe I wouldn't have, I don't know if I would have been this worried before. I don't know. Like I can't go back in time and figure that out or like get in a time machine and guess. But um I definitely am scared. Like I think people are gonna get violent and I think people are gonna 
get into interpersonal violence in ways that um, will be really, I mean, we've already seen people doing stuff that's like scamming others and, you know, like being greedy and hoarding and whatnot. Um, but I, I think that there's also going to be a trickling down of the violence that the government is committing onto us into our interpersonal relationships. Um, and I am not hopeful about that. And especially as we saw immediately prior to the shutting down where we had people buying guns en masse again, like that's not hopeful. That's not like hope inducing, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind is in my state in particular, the governor did not include gun stores on the essential businesses list and yet several gun stores decided they were going to defy the governor's order and stay open anyway. And it just, it was basically, we just don't talk about it because the reality of the situation is, is what are you going to do? Like, wait, are you gonna, who, who are you going to send to shut the gun store down? Is <laughs> like, like the police are probably uh, on the side of the gun store in the first place. Right. But then, like, even if they weren't, then then the gun store says no. So what are you mm-hmm. going to station police outside of these gun stores? Is that the plan? Like, and then what about the people that want to shop at that gun store or that own the gun store that want to get inside of their place? And now you have the police keeping them out of their own private property. And now you've gotten a, a Bundy situation, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so like, it, it's you, the, one of the things that concerns me the most about the centrist Democrat argument about falling in line behind Biden which I, I wish it was that easy. I wish that, you know, getting rid of Trump was enough. Like I really would, because that I feel like that would be simple enough to get everybody on the same page. And if that was enough, we could get it done. But the issue is, is like we, the, the next package for the relief is getting t- hashed out between Democrats and Republicans basically online because they don't plan on actually being in formal session until May, despite this current crisis. And like in that package, they aren't, able to get a lot of the aid that they need for states individually and then for lower income people specifically, but also they're not able to get in a voting package, anything to take care of how we're going to massively increase absentee voting in states where the typically, you know, it's just a, a county register hand sealing a few envelopes to send to a couple people. And now that you're going to ask that person to be dealing with thousands and thousands of uh, absentee ballots or mail-in ballots, and there's just not the infrastructure for that we need legislation in order to both fund it and actually make it, you know, a viable system. And that's not getting included in this package. And the way our governments work, six months is pushing it like, and they're, they're not even going to have that. It's starting to look like. And so like the idea that there's even going to be a verifiable legitimate election in November isn't, isn't certain. And so are Biden and his supporters the type of people that are going to be ready to do anything about that? No, I don't know. So. <laughs> I'm, so, <laughs> I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering where's do? where's the OAS at right now? Where are they at? <laughs> They're <laughs> right? real quiet. They're real quiet. <laughs> just like that's uh, the, to me, that's like that's a serious question that liberals aren't confronting. Is like even if you get Biden, and what if the conservative already conservative Supreme Court uh, decides to overturn Roe v. Wade? What are you going to do? You're going to wait till the next election? Are you going to you going to snitch on the doctors that are providing abortions in your city so that you're not complicit in the criminal activity? Like, how do you even like how do you process this this world where you've seen Democrats inability to confront and stop Republicans? And yet now you're going to send a, a moderate one that's campaigned on working with these guys like what? It's just like that is it's concerning to me. And so what I've found is that the the optimistic route that i've taken is that if their system collapses then it takes a 
then the the alternative systems have to be less uh, prolific and less you know uh, less I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, but I guess uh, they don't have to be as as grand in order to be seen as a viable alternative if the system as it is has failed. I'm not an accelerationist and I don't support that type of argument, but it doesn't seem like it, America can help itself at this point or the United States can help itself at this point and that that we're we're just going to accelerate ourselves down a track where the capitalist system fails in such an utter and complete fashion that essentially you're going to need to build and rely on mutual aid networks in your own communities and so I think this is as good of an opportunity as any to recognize the necessity of that and to 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 work on it and build on it, whether that's forming a renters uh, tenants union or it's, you know, making sure that everybody in your building has food or whatever it is, you know, work on making sure that you're developing the mutual aid networks and organizations that if and or when the government fails and isn't able to provide even the basic necessities that you have at least ideas about how you can equitably distribute what you're able to achieve and, and gather and, and be able to mutually uh, kind of uh, access or get the supplies that you do need because you as an individual are going to be less likely to be able to get those things if they're in high demand, but you as a group are going to be a lot more successful. I think we're all going to have to do it, unfortunately, by way of Zoom or something, because um, yeah, it's I mean, tricky. <laughs> it's kind of hard. We have to be really creative right now. Um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there have been some alternative efforts being made you know, outside. And when I say alternative, I mean like extra governmental, right? Uh, parastatal sort of um, measures, but it's going to be a real uphill battle. I don't have any answers. Sorry, my baby's crying. Um, but I'm, I'm just, I'm at a loss myself. We're all with them. We're all with them. The, yeah, yeah. Babies, babies agreeing with the despair here. Um, but hopefully we can come up with something. I just, I don't know what that's going to look like if we're limited in terms of literal physical contact, right? Um, and we're going to have to use, I think we're going to have to use the internet. And and while we have it, while we have the internet, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, right. While we I'd, have access, to I the would internet. consider investing in learning about how ham radios function, just in general, because it is an alternative way of communication that's less reliant on uh, the infrastructure of uh, the the corporate infrastructure of cell phones. But one of the other things, quickly, I just it came to my mind that I that I remembered I wanted to mention, and it kind of touches on this. Is I watched. I don't know if you saw. There's a documentary on Netflix called a uh, Crip Camp, and it's uh, basically it's about it starts out in a summer camp for uh, disabled people or uh, like a lot of some people are just people that their families put away because of uh, various other issues or whatever. But uh, it was back in the 70s and essentially it was a community of a group of people that were marginalized and uh, it was interracial, wasn't like segregated or anything like that. And so it was a place where they found uh, together that they weren't all that they found a, a togetherness and a commonality that they weren't alone in their struggles. And it, it ended up uh, manifesting into direct political action that ended up uh, being key to the advancements that we saw in the accommodations for uh, disabled people in our country. And so like, I feel that there's something, uh, there's something that people can learn from that. And I think you're right that we're going to have to, adjust it for the current day circumstances with like zoom or stuff. But I think 
being in communities where you find out that the way that you see the world and the kind of things that you're experiencing are not unique to you, but shared experiences across a variety of people will help us build a class consciousness that is desperately needed in this country to have any sort of chance, uh, you know, not just uh, being witnesses to whatever happens in the world moving forward. On that note, I'm going to have to make that the last word, Richard, because unfortunately, although fortunately, we're happy that she's eating, but my baby has to eat dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things dinner. like, well, I'm glad you're doing this thing, but <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> like we're even more stressful if you weren't <laughs> right. Like, please nourish yourself. But also, um, yeah, but as always, it was an excellent discussion. I'm happy to have had this time to uh, break virtual bread with you and have a discussion. Yeah, um, I mean, this serves as much for me as that they're that for me you know being able to find community and common thinking and so i very much appreciate it yeah and thank you all to all of our listeners of course as always um but yeah i definitely want to keep touching on this subject we have some other um, episodes coming up that are going to be about of course coronavirus and um different responses to it and and alternatives and things like that but i just i don't know i i want to keep this line of thought slash thoughts going because I wonder really like what is the solution going to be from the people because it's very clear to me that the government doesn't currently offer any solutions and I mean on both sides of the aisle um so we've got to find a way to really combat this creatively through alternative means through ways that we can still protect ourselves um it's an uphill battle but it's one that we're going to have to fight if we plan on surviving as a species pretty much Mm -hmm. so so yeah we got to do some work there um but again thank you so much richard as always thanks to our listeners and uh don't forget to check out of course the patreon where we have a lot of other reading resources and things like that and of course all of the podcast episodes you can go to patreon.com slash left poc or you can search left poc on the internets and while they're still available (laughs) um and find us through that on social media and the like so again thanks so much everyone stay safe stay at home if you can and if you're an essential worker um essential employee if you're a hospital worker etc please protect yourself through any means necessary um we're looking out for you we're hoping for you we're praying for you and we're really thankful for the work that you do um and hope that there is i don't know help on the way uh, and that we can provide it in some way or another. So thanks again. Solidarity. And thank you for listening. Be sure to check out all of our content, including past episodes, reading resources, and more on our Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also find us on social media and all other means of communication by just searching for Left POC. All of our content is free for the public and for everyone to enjoy. However, if you'd like to give us a donation of a dollar or more per month to keep us afloat, again, go to patreon.com slash left POC. Thanks so much, everyone. Please stay healthy, stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Bye.